Hello, this is James Ippolitti, host of Out of Silence. I wanted to jump in just to let you know that you may hear that it is the Songsmith Podcast or Creativity Gurus Podcast. Season one of both of those have been combined to the name Out of Silence, and that will be the name moving forward for any interviews that I have about creativity. So don't be confused. Songsmith Podcast and the Creativity Gurus is now under one brand, Out of Silence. Peace. Greetings, Hepcats. In this edition of the Creativity Gurus, I speak with Brass Rabbit. Now, if you recall, there was an interview with Philip McConnell, and if you haven't listened to that, go back and listen to the interview with glitch artist Philip McConnell, and he tells me that one of his inspirations is Brass Rabbit. So I invited Brass Rabbit onto the show. You will love this interview. It is one of my favorites. There is so much to learn from a working artist. She is a documentary photographer and a fine artist working and living in Trenton, New Jersey. If you like what I'm doing, please go to the Apple Podcast, give me a five-star review, write something nice, say hello. Also, follow me on Instagram at James underscore Ippolitti or TikTok at James Ippolitti. You can also go to my website, jamesippolitti.com. Just look into the notes if you can't spell my last name. Most people can't. So I'm really having a great time doing these. I hope you enjoy this interview with Brass Rabbit as much as I have. However, due to my age, every time I hear Brass Rabbit, I sing in my head, Brass Rabbit, that funky rabbit. But that's probably because I grew up with the Beastie Boys. All right, now let's get to my interview with Brass Rabbit. My guest today is Brass Rabbit, a fine artist and documentary photographer living and working in Trenton, New Jersey. Welcome to the show. I'm happy to have you. Thank you so much. All right. So um, I want to go back before you started doing documentary photographer. It says you started with capturing the home lives of gang members. But I want to go before that. What were you doing? Anything creative prior to that? Yeah, so I I kind of stumbled into photography. It started with um, you know me just bringing a camera around, and then I had friends, and they would pose, and uh, people people started telling me that the pictures that I was taking were were pretty good, and that they wanted them printed out, you know, so uh, kind of something to take home. Or uh, and then one day I realized that I I had to like, do something with my life, you know, as one does in uh, high school. And uh, some friends at the time were just like, why don't you do this? Like, you do this really well. You should just do this. And it didn't occur to me that that could have been like a possible avenue of something to do. And the kind of work that I was really interested in was, again, like that that heavy documentary side of things, uh, which is what I was getting into at the time. And uh, from that point, you know, building from that, like doing early portrait work and kind of doing some macro stuff, uh, that's how I got into it. But definitely the portrait photography when I was younger, even, you know, uh, when I was like in school, uh, I was I was actively taking pictures of people. And I'm sure that some of my actually early, early work is in people's like living rooms, um, <laughs> you know, that I, I don't know about. So, yeah. Right. All right, so you're you're now deciding to take this um, further. What made you think, hmm, I'm going to document 
gang members. And, and am I ignorant for thinking this is a dangerous thing to be doing? Like, because I feel like my first thought is that's really cool. My second thought is, is that a dangerous thing? And would they be willing to being somebody with this sort of uh, lifestyle to be captured on film? Yeah, um, there's a couple points to that question. Um, you know, I think an enormous focus on the earlier work that I did uh, was entirely dependent on the, when you're younger, you don't have a clear understanding of how quickly you can die, right? You know, right. Like your mortality is not something that you were all too, uh, you face all the time, you know, like you'll never end, you'll be an endless star and so on and so forth. Um, you know, so, uh, I, I most certainly think that an enormous amount of my work early on, the concept of that wasn't, wasn't something that I really thought about, you know, it was not, uh, paramount to the, to what I was doing every day. Um, uh, I, I am a, I'm a runner, you know, so that's kind of how I got my name. Uh, that, that was really as far as it got for me, I think with the, the facing one's mortality and the danger of doing that. But I also think that when you're really in that kind of position, you're unendingly conscious of your privilege because as a person who is there to document, I am hyper aware of the fact that I am not in as much risk as anybody else who's in the room. Right. So uh, there's a, there's a part of that kind of work too, where it pulls you out of the reality of what's really going on around you. And it kind of can give you a false sense of security just because you are so aware of how high the stakes are for the people who you are working with. Um, when I first started working, it was really my friends who I started working with. It was acquaintances. It was people who I knew. It was people who sold substances. Uh, and then it kind of moved on from through the circles of those individuals up into uh, more complicated structures and different people I didn't know. So with those individuals, again, that was more of a, I know this person through this person and this person knows right. this person through that person, uh, which was a little bit easier. But I think that the, once you get a person in a room and you say, this is what I want to do, are you interested in this? Most individuals who exist in any form of shadowed lifestyle, no matter what it is, are, some of them are very, very willing and they're very keen to sit down and have a conversation with somebody about what actually is going on with them because they live in a shadowed environment. They don't have anyone asking them these questions. And if they do feel comfortable enough, which again, like that has to happen first. Um, you know, you need to have some sort of pre-existing relationship or you need to work on uh, creating a, some form of trust. But I, most of the people who I have worked with, not only early on in my career, but even with what I'm doing now, many of them say, you know, I, I do want to talk about this because I can't, I, no one else wants to listen. Right. Um, yeah. So if that answers your question. It does. So at, is this the first project you worked on that you felt like I'm not just taking a pretty picture, but there's a story behind it that I want to tell? Um, with, with the earlier documentary work? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think that early, early on in my career, I had to teach myself and I had to learn how do you create a collection of something that communicates a theme or an idea 
to a person who knows nothing else. You know, they're just looking at an image. So that's, that's no wall text. That's no paragraph. That's no title, nothing. How do I do that? And that was so, so difficult for me early on. I had the most, most difficult time trying to understand how do I do this? How do I do this? And I failed and I failed and I failed and I made a bunch of terrible things. And, um, eventually I just eventually just happened. You know, eventually I sat down and I realized like, well, this is a coherent theme and this relates to this. And these things over time sort of just kind of started to fall into place with my own ability to convey um, the meaning of something. I, I think also my ability to ask more specific questions and to really try to understand cohesively within a short amount of time. Because uh, in documentary work, it's not just taking pictures of people. You right. have to understand them. You have to interview them, learn them. So, you know, for, I think that early on, it was a really big struggle for me to learn, okay, so can I actually do this? Is this really a thing that's even an option, which I did not think for, I still not entirely sure about it. Um, (laughs) uh, And then also, you know, how, what do I want to convey? Uh, What is, what is the appropriate thing to be saying? And from a moral context, there's a ton of different questions in there that are really hard to answer. I especially think for for younger creatives, and um, and how do I want to do that? So absolutely, that was kind of the more simplistic strings of like cons- concept through my work early on. So what yeah. is it that you think pulled you through the doubt and the you know the negative aspects that you're probably thinking? Like what inside of you kept you going? That's a really good question. Um, oh, yeah, um, probably. I mean, I, I probably probably just just the interest. You know, I think that that is why a lot of people continue to do things that are difficult. Uh, there's something on the other side that you don't know about and you want to know. Um, you know that that thirst for for more information, for no- more knowledge, and and knowledge for myself, but also. Um, the all creatives have this undying uh, necessity to to create something better, you know, to create something that is more fulfilling, it's more actualized, that represents them or who they're talking about, and um, you know, so so probably some of that. Like I was interested in how far I could take things, and I think I, f- I felt like uh, it was one of those kinds of things. It was like I was behind a brick wall, and it was just right over there. Like I could hear it, you know, and I could feel it and I could tell that the room was kind of cold, but I couldn't figure out how to get over the wall. Um, And, and, you know, I think a lot of creatives, especially with their their next big project or that that issue that they just can't get over or solve. um, That's how it feels. You know, you know, you know what it is, but it's not you you just got to wait a little bit longer for it to really uh, unveil itself or for you to climb over that. Yeah, that's a really good analogy, that wall. So I'm going to steal that. Um, yeah. <laughs> so early on with the gang members, you had this theme and it, it, it seems to appear through all your work of economics, you know, um, people living a life that money may either be there or hard to get. Uh, what, what do you, is there something in your past that makes you feel this? Like what drives that? Where's that come from? Yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't know. And, and, and I don't know for many reasons. Um, I, in school, did not show an aptitude for math. Uh, I was not interested in math. I was not interested in school to begin with. And I, I think the 
you know, I, I honestly, I really don't know where it came from. One day I just, I woke up and I kind of started, I guess, getting into different uh, pieces of literature and, you know, through not having any money, that is an immediate focus on money. So there was that kind of subconscious thing back and through there where, um, you know, uh, seeing things, especially when I was, was younger about how like, okay, well, like you have to go work another job and then, you know, you're never home because you guys are over here doing this. And like, um, you know, you have to let yourself into the house and make dinner and so on and so forth. Um, noticing those little, little micro themes throughout my life and then, uh, getting older and seeing how, you know, individuals in the place where I'm from in, in Trenton function and how they, if you have no means, like how hard it is to obtain services that like the government provides or nonprofits provide and, and being in that community, being exposed to that community in different facets all throughout my life, uh, made me, I guess, more cognizant of what value is and, and how resources are distributed. And then wrapping back into, again, I started out my earlier career working with these young guys who, who just had stacks of cash, like right. everywhere, you know, and they played games with it. And then they would go, they would count it and then they would have to go re up and then they would do this and they would do that. And, and the focus on like, when you have a lot of cash and you can't buy anything and how are you supposed to move forward from that? Like that is a con that that's a, that's an economic problem. That's an issue that entirely involves value, money, resources. Uh, and so all of these little tiny kind of real world applications of economics, like were sprinkled throughout my life. And one day I just was like, well, how about I start looking into this? And, um, I didn't go the traditional route with most of the research that I did. I feel like a lot of people, get into uh, like organizational theories. So like they read Marx or they, you know, like they kind of get into the classic, like one side or the other side. Uh, I started reading a lot of very dense, somewhat uninteresting uh, research and books cataloging people's experiences in um, what they would call like illicit economies. Right. I don't typically like that term. Now I don't really use that in my own uh, work. But um, so following some things that were going on in, you know, New York in the 80s and how um, a trade functions in, in black and brown neighborhoods and so on and so forth. And that's what really like that literature is what really got me into, oh, I can understand this. You know, like I know what this is. This is very familiar to me um, because there is a big wall there. And I, again, showed no interest in this early on. So, so I want to get into the grayscale uh, gray economics, but let's back up. Uh, after you went to the documentary filmmaker, the gang members, you worked in some nonprofit organizations. Is that correct? Yes. Yep. All right. And so how did you get into that? <laughs> I got into that in a, in a way in which a lot of things happen in Trenton. I was, um, I was photographing a weed festival um, and I ran into this guy Oh wait, are we talking like smoke weed or are we talking like uh, oh, daisies? And you, uh, good, pot. very good point. No, like, like marijuana. Uh, right. It was <laughs> in a public park in, yeah, it was a public park in Trenton. And um, okay. I was there just to kind of shoot for fun. I ran at this guy. We actually took a picture of one another and he said, hey, you should come to this warehouse party on um, insert very dangerous street in Trenton here. It's 
on a Sunday and it starts at 8 p.m. and it goes till 8 a.m. And me, of course, I have no mortality. I'm not worried about myself at all, right? Like I've, I've been all over the place. I was like, yeah, it sounds like a great idea. I should definitely do that. And I went there and I met, um, I met some guys, uh, one of whom was someone who looked very familiar to me. Uh, his, his name is um, uh, the Almighty Blood Messiah. He, he's now a very good friend. Uh, he makes candles at the time and he was, you know, in the back carving stuff up. And I went over and talked to him. And um, through that place where we went, I, I met a whole bunch of people that night. And one of whom uh, said, you know, you should come back and we should talk about your work. We have this program thing that we do and we're working on getting our filing for an, a 501c3. Um, previously, at the time, I was working in marketing. So I took the skills from that job and then kind of just like slid into this new world with these very uh, wonderful, fun people who were doing some really cool stuff in the city. So Right. So prior to this, you're kind of on your own doing these um, documentary photography sessions. You're running around doing this. What did you learn from being part of a nonprofit when it comes to the arts? Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I learned a lot of things. I think that I learned one that chaos is everywhere, no matter what kind of organization it is right, like right. Coca-Cola, very chaotic, Microsoft, super chaotic. Like it doesn't matter. Big, small, um, they're all run by like stressed out people who, who don't sleep enough and they're hanging on by a thread. Um, you know, and, and I think that I also learned uh, while I was working with Sage, I did a ton of different kinds of programming. I helped coordinate super large scale events where we had like four or 500 people in like a very tiny space over like three hours. Um, you know, working with other artists in the city was really, really impactful, especially to learn how they organize things and how I organize things and what the best way to do that was uh, through Sage. I actually got into my first exhibition, um, which is where I met Philip McConnell, who you did a, a conversation That's with right. recently. It was really cool. Um, and um, yeah, you know, it definitely taught me a, a more relaxed um, more fluid form of like grassroots community organization, because that's really what Sage was. It was, it was a real nonprofit, but it was super grassroots. Right. Um, and, and definitely uh, helped me focus on like that strong networking um, need when you're in a small space that doesn't have a ton of money, like where I'm from uh, in order to like get opportunities and do things for other people and really pull uh, all the strings together to make something work. So yeah, it was it was a really really great opportunity. All right, and then at what point did you decide I'm going to make my own uh, Brass Rabbit LLC? <laughs> um, when did I do that? Um, oh gosh, I think I did that about two years ago. Now it feels okay. like it has not been two years, but it was about two years ago, and I started the LLC to be perfectly honest with you because I was getting ready to buy a house, um, and I needed to I needed to clean up all my money everywhere. Right. Um, you know, so. I do a lot of different things. Like I, I teach uh, children's programming uh, here in Trenton. I do, you know, like I would do shoots for people every so often. And I kind of had to just organize my finances uh, to get all of that together. And at the time before pre-COVID, I was working uh, the managing and curating an art gallery here in Trenton. And when it all stopped, I kind of was like, I'm going to have to now make all of my money on my own, which is actually really, really wonderful because I already had 
done my taxes for two years, you know, and I already had all my books. I had the filing done. Um, So now I am like working entirely independently, but it kind of started all of these things. I just kind of tumble into, you know, yeah, I tumble into that. (laughs) Yeah. We're seeing a trend here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that yeah. you know that actually goes with the idea. If you're following your bliss, doors will be open where there were no doors before. That's a Joseph Campbell saying. I didn't make that up, but yes. I I love it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You do consulting. Like, what is it that you spend a lot of time outside of the photography with your consulting or or anything like that related to Brass Rabbit? I. For consulting, primarily what I'm doing right now, um, you know, people will come to me and they'll be like, what are your thoughts on hanging this object in a place? And I'll say, that's what I think. And then we'll go through material and stuff like that and how they can do that. So that's one side of the consulting. Um, I also am uh, shifting into curatorial work under um, the, my actual company. So that's like, you know, arranging open calls, finding artists, um, emailing them and running around and trying to find them in the world, uh, hanging their artwork and, um, organizing payment, uh, opening so on and so forth. So filling spaces, uh, is a big part of that consulting aspect too, which is more of like, I guess, um, you know, me coming in as a consultant position, but from a curatorial perspective. Um, and then also, you know, again, stuff with like hanging artwork, I help out with people doing that all the time. I was just running around downtown Trenton, hanging some public artwork, uh, for a nonprofit here called Isles. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty varied, you know? Yeah. I don't think people realize that setting up something and where something goes, like that's an art in itself, just setting up a gallery mm-hmm. show or something like that. We will get right back to my conversation with Brass Rabbit right after this word from our sponsor that allows me to keep this show going. Have you heard about Anchor? It's the easiest way to make a podcast. I'm so serious. Super easy. Let me explain. First, it's free. There are creation tools that let you record and edit your podcast from your phone or your computer. Mostly I'd use the computer, but I just did the phone and it was super easy. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. And doing that yourself is a pain in the butt. So, so happy they do it for me. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Now, let's get creative. Let's talk about the uh, Grayscale Economics because um, the one thing I heard you say in the talk that really was amazing uh, was you said everybody has these issues with money, right? That we all are kind of concerned where it's coming from. And then there's these other people who have those same things, but on top of that, they're invisible. Yep. Um, Speak more about that and then how you decided to do this uh, presentation of not only the artwork, but also all the little charts you put out there. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that this is something that with a lot of my work, especially within the economic realm, it is not fun to hear about and it's not interesting to talk about. Um, if your friend told you, Hey, do you want to go listen to this woman lecture about economics? You'd be like, no, I'm busy. (laughs) Um, you know, and I know that. And, uh, so, but, but I think that 
there's something that's so relatable and that's so understandable to everyone. And we would all be a lot better off if we talked about money more. Um, and then to go back into that point where, you know, we all have these problems with money and we don't really want to go to economics lectures and we don't want to think about finance. And when our bank sends us all this information about like setting yourself up for success, we all like delete that email. And, um, you know, but there are those people who are huge, huge um, actors in your everyday life and my everyday life. And, and they have these issues, but they don't have the stability of being a full-fledged functioning economic actor or participant in the world that we get to exist in. So like I have my LLC and people pay me and the government sees that. And then I get X, Y, and Z on, you know, taxes. And one day I might get social security and so on and so forth. And these individuals, they might work more than I do. They might um, not be provided with health insurance. They might not be provided with insurance if they fall on the job. Um, they can be terminated with absolutely no oversight for any reason whatsoever. Um, and they have no like protections or, or guidelines at all. Um, so when we think about these individuals who are doing things that really and truly impact people like me and you, um, you know, I think that there is what I try to do is I try to wrap people's anxiety about their own money into being like, but you should also think about these people over here who help yeah. clean your office and they help feed you on the street when you're walking around in a city you're unfamiliar with. And they, you know, sell water bottles or they do a lot of different jobs that you probably think are on the books, but are technically not like there is a whole myriad of different people in different types of situations um, who don't have those same protections, who don't have the ability to find work where they would have those protections. And um, the reasons for that are like a super long list that we don't even have time to get into. Right. But, you know, not everybody gets to choose uh, where it is that they land and where it is that they work. But I think that there definitely is something that's really admirable about someone who is trying to participate in a system that does not want them to be there or does not want them to take up any space anywhere, but then demands the world of them. What is your um, goal of showing this economics to people? Like, what is your hope that people see? Um, the goal with all of my documentary work, and especially with this project, is nothing in particular. Um, I think that I would far prefer for everyone to just have more information and then they can make their own judgments based off of having first person source information. So again, like what you're saying about these, um, you know, uh, made up individuals in the suburbs who would feel this type of way. Uh, I think that they would be better off. Not that I want to change their opinion to anything necessarily, but if you have opinions about individuals who you've never had the opportunity to ask questions to. You've never had the opportunity to communicate with and have, you know, a real discourse with and try to learn about what their lives are actually like, then you shouldn't have such strong held opinions on them. So my goal in collecting this data, my goal in collecting any information is to provide it to um, anyone who's interested in saying, oh, that's what that is. You know, so um, the survey that I have with the Grayscale Economics Project, it, it just to do a general overview. Um, it combines data journalism uh, through anonymous surveying, um, uh, quotes and storytelling through anonymous interviews, 
and photography. And uh, there are four total phases of the project. I just completed the first phase at uh, JKC Gallery in downtown Trenton. And it basically had um, all of that data that I had sourced through anonymous surveying. And they're in two different languages, English and Spanish. Um, and the surveys asked questions that were super, super uh, unbiased. They were really uninteresting. Uh, they asked things like, how would you explain what it is that you do? How many hours a week do you work? Um, is this your main source of income? Do you have any expenses annually from your work? And uh, do you have any dependents? If you could do anything, what would you do? So it took all of this information and then I printed all of that out uh, on these little um, kind of like ribbon rectangles with the questions over top of them. And then I also interviewed individuals anonymously on a whole different bunch of different platforms using code names and all of that stuff. And then took uh, quotes from those conversations and I printed them for broader context with this set list of questions that I asked those individuals as well. So my goal is never to push an agenda. Like I don't want anyone to think what I think I want this in the purest documentary sense. You know, I, I want to provide you with more than you had and, and let you walk away and say, huh, I didn't know that the, you know, lawn working people, you know, will make work an average of blank hours. And I didn't know that um, maybe a sex worker is um, cons would be considering like, dental work as a line of, you know, a hobby moving forward or so on and so forth. Yeah. That's great. I think uh, art at its best does what you just explained that um, it brings the viewer in and lets them ask questions. Right. I mean, uh, not hitting them over the head with what, like you said, an agenda, but also do you documentary also has, should be that way. Yeah. I, I feel like documentary film sort of went in the opposite direction. Uh, when we're talk, not film photography, I'm talking like movies, where documentaries yeah. ha, are no longer unbiased and just presenting the facts. They now all have this agenda. And I like Michael Moore. Uh, I don't have any <laughs> negative thing about him, but I think he is the one who kind of led that along, where his movies... Yeah came out and he had as an agenda and his is one side and he made a lot of money and people thought, wait a minute, this seems to work. So we're going to continue to do that. If you go to Ken Burns, he's just showing you here's what mm -hmm. it is. And, and I think mm -hmm. the yeah. same with documentary photography, it should be that um, there's a photographer. I don't know if you've heard about him, but he's from, I can't think of his name right now, but he's from Philadelphia. He did everything in Kensington about the, um, you know, the epidemic on drugs. Uh, yeah. And he had a show at the the museum down in Philly. Mm -hmm. And I think this is important work. I think, yeah. you know, it's why do you think you said, I'm going to be that type of artist? Is it just who you are? Because, you know, you could have, and I don't want to sound negative. You could have been a wedding photographer, right? Yeah. Probably made uh -huh. more money. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm not putting down any wedding photographers, so don't text me and yell at me or anything. But I'm saying, <laughs> why do you think you went that route where you want to have that? Is just is that your core? I yeah, that's that's. I think that I went this route because you know 
for me, it made the most sense to to have the most impact um, in the most efficient way. You know, again, like I, I am very interested in economics. I, I love the concept of efficiency. Um, I and, you know, so I, I love the concept of efficiency. I, I, I don't want to spend an enormous amount of my career doing something when I realize later on that I could have been like, oh, well, if I just worked like significantly harder, I could have accomplished all of the things that I did, but just in a different way. Um, you know, so, so there's that side of it. Um, in addition to that, I also am, I am like so endlessly agitated by people holding really strong opinions that and I feel like I just keep saying this in every interview that I do, um, but people ho- holding these really, really strong opinions when they don't have correct information right. or when they don't do that true hard research to really learn something. Um, well, it, like, you, just, getting, you just answered it. It is hard work. Okay. It is hard work. And people are lazy. Yes. Bottom line. Mm-hmm. And they don't yeah. want to know. People are lazy. It's easier to be and ignorant. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's easier because also the people who we are just statistically surrounded by are people like us. Right. You know, if, if I was not going to, um, if I was going to do this project and I was only going to do it with people who were in the block that I live on, I would get a certain answer and I would have a certain basis of opinion after doing that. You know, and, and the same thing would go for you and anyone else. Right. Like, you're not going to expand your horizons, your your understanding of other people's lives if you ask your neighbors. And one of the things with my line of work, again, like I worked in marketing. I worked in the nonprofit industry. I worked doing photography. I've worked with gang members. Like, I have this really weird set of skills where I can do this. Like, I am, I love spreadsheets. I have thousands of spreadsheets. I have many pages to the spreadsheets. They're very complicated. Um, I will bother you. I will Instagram message you. I will not stop until you respond to me. Like I'm using all of these weird skills that I obtained from all of those other different worlds and lives that I've had to complete this ridiculous feat because scammers don't want you to find them. Like it was very hard finding the scammers who I have found just so far to interview and to have take the survey. Um, you know, and I, the reason why I don't think anyone's done this is because it's ridiculous. Yeah. No one would want to do this. Like yeah. they'd start doing it and they would stop because it's horrible. <laughs> this has been very difficult to do. Um, but I, I am so irritated by people not understanding at least even what scammers do. And, uh, I have, you know, I have to do something. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to do something with my life. And I have the skills in the background to get it off the ground. So, like, that's 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 kind of why, you know. Now, you said that phase one just happened. Yeah. yeah. When is phase yeah. two? So phase, so, phase one, um, I just wrapped the exhibition. I'm right now shipping the show around to other places to see if I can just pop it in different spots. Um, phase two is going to be kind of like... Uh, a social media documentary type situation where I'm going to continue doing what I did. I'm going to keep trying to get people to do surveys. I'm going to add some new surveys in different languages. Um, I'm going to keep working on my interviews. So I'm going to build more and more content. I need at least a thousand more survey responses. Like I'd like to get somewhere close to there. Um, I'm not near there anywhere near there, but I want to get there. Okay. And uh, so I'm going to keep doing that. I'm going to do some in-person surveying. So it means you'll see me on the streets of New York trying my best. Um, and then, uh, 
I am also going to start shooting with participants who I've been working with for several years in person. So I'll go to Nashville, I'll go to Florida, I'll go to Wisconsin, and I'll shoot with individuals in the spaces that they function in. And then I'm going to be taking out their faces. Um, And then phase three is an exhibition with that new data, those new images mixed in with some of the previous um, images from the first exhibition. And then the fourth uh, phase is a book with oh, yeah. some uh, some really meaty data from everything that I've collected uh, with a good amount of statistical analysis, some charts, so on and so forth. Um, and in, uh, some more of the, like a longer quotes from interviews and a sampling of the photos. Nice. Why'd you call it Grayscale yeah. Economics? Yep. The Grayscale Economics Project. What, what's, where's that name come from? What do we, I'm not an yeah, economics so that, person. <laughs> The, the, well, actually it's not even from economics. Um, okay, good. <laughs> it's a, it's a play on a couple of different things. So it's a play on a couple of different things. So, um, in, in the culture of individuals who exist on the dark web and who do, um, things in that realm, uh, they have identify identifying markers for one another where there'll be like a white hat, a gray hat or a black hat in form of determining, you know, this person does very, very bad things. Um, that's a black hat, a gray hat's a person who's like, mm, they're kind yeah. of okay. And a white hat is a person who's like a Robin Hood type figure. Okay, got it. So I took that. Yeah, I took that and used it kind of in conjunction with the the gray scale, you know, like that sliding scale. Yeah. Um, but also because I think that this idea entirely with individuals who function in non-traditional economies, there is always this gray area. And this entire project is really looking into the details and into the the first person, the lives of the people who experience this, you know, where is it that they feel they fit? Um, and, and what do the participants or the people who view all of this stuff feel? Um, so really focusing on that, there's nothing that's really like, I, that's why I don't like the words illicit and illicit. There's nothing that really is like illicit. There's nothing that's really illicit um, other than in like the view of the law. Um, but you know, uh, kind of honoring that middle. What about a hitman? Would a hitman be illicit? Somebody who was yeah, a hitman. That would that would probably be illicit. All yeah, right. you could you that, could you could categorize that. Right. So I haven't found see how any far of those. we could go. So yeah, you haven't yeah. had a hitman, but I'm just saying in general, that would be like because I could see how sex work to me. I one, I think it should be legal. I mean, legal across the country. Mm-hmm. I have no. Just because it's happening, it, we could put things in place to protect the workers. Um, yeah. There could be uh, things t- uh, for them to get tested. You know, there'd be so mm-hmm. many. They'd have health care type things. Uh, it would yeah. be a much better world. I also think drugs should be illegal. So, I mean, it's it's ridiculous, this country going for that. But let's say somebody's listening and they say, you know what? I'm, I'm somebody in this grayscale slider and I want to talk to brass rabbit how do they get in contact with you to be interviewed yeah so um there's there's a whole bunch of different ways i have tried to make myself very contactable um you can go to my website there is a contact for my website or you can just search the word words grayscale economics project um it should pop up my website will pop up uh for those of you who don't want to do that my website is uh, brass-rabbit.com. Pretty easy to remember. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram and message me. You can, I prefer the people don't like comment on 
public posts as, as a way of inquiry because right. it's best to keep everything kind of anonymous. Um, you know, I want to keep everything anonymous. And um, on the website page as well for Grayscale Economics, there are QR codes and there are links to the anonymous surveys. You don't have to ask me for a survey. You can just get one and take it. Um, on my Instagram profile as well, I have my link tree set up. It has both the uh, English and Spanish survey on there as well. So you can take that super quickly. The surveys are only 12 uh, questions long and they take about four to like 20 minutes, depending on how much info you want to give. Uh, they don't ask for any information at all. No, I have no way of contacting you. So no email, know where you're from, uh, your name, your pseudonym, nothing like that. So everything is 100% anonymous. I believe in my on my website, the contact form for reaching out for an interview, it just says, give me a nickname even. Okay. So that's yeah. cool. So yeah. um, I have a question just because I saw it. Well, first of all, is did Art All Night happen in Trenton yet? No, no. Good question. Um, Art All Night is happening. It uh, starts on this Saturday, and it is going to go till Sunday, I believe, at 3 p.m. Okay. God, I'll probably be working. But um, it's all night, so I can go in the middle of the night. Is it doing virtual, though? Is it virtual this year? Yes, it's all virtual. Um, I will be hosting a panel oh, discussion okay. on Sunday. Um, so you could tune into that, but everything is all virtual. All right, I forgot. Um, yeah. 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 I can't wait till it Because of back. COVID, unfortunately, yeah. but maybe next yeah, you year. Know, that's another question. Does, did COVID affect you artistically in any way? That's a great question. Yes. The whole year affected me quite a good deal. Um, you know, from the, the space that I used to curate for, that closed. So that was a big, sudden, like, end to things. Um, you know, definitely being in my house more not being able to really go out. A lot of my work is entirely determined right. by me going to go see other humans uh, and going to talk to them. So it was a huge shift for me, especially with working on that finishing phase one of uh, Grayscale Economics. Suddenly, just to be like, no one will call me back. Everybody's afraid they're going to die. You know, I don't know what to do now. So it definitely was a really, really big shift. And I live, um, you can't hear it right now because I have all the windows closed. I live downtown right in front of the, uh, the Capitol complex, which is where people protest right. for any reason at all, you know, at, at all. And there have been lots of protests in the last year. So from people driving around honking their horns every minute of every day for a couple months um, in 2020 to you name it, every, I hear it. Yeah, I hear them singing. I hear them chanting. That's been fun. Yeah. All right. So one question about something I saw um, was, I just want to understand what it was. It was on, I think it was on your Instagram and it was a man standing there and you were wrapping like receipt paper around him or something. Oh, yeah. And it was coming out of his yeah. mouth. What was the, what's the story behind that? That's so funny. That piece is actually like, right over, you can't see it, but it's right up here. Um, <laughs> yeah. So this is, that's a really important thing that I should totally get into before people look at my Instagram and they're like, what's going on? <laughs> um, I do documentary photography. And then in addition to that, I also do um, what you could consider to be like fine art photography. Mm -hmm. So uh, those are pieces that I are entirely informed either by just random images that pop into my head that I want to shoot with people I know um, or things that are really meticulously planned. That image was something that just kind of popped into my head. Um, and the, uh, the 
the concept behind that a while ago, um, I was working in a grocery store and I used to have older men who would like come in and they'd come up to me and they would be like, they'd shoot off a whole bunch of rapid fire questions. And I worked in the vitamin department. So you got a lot of like weird people just trying to like test you about like, how much do you really know about chemistry? So on and so forth. Um, and they would come in and they would be like, and then you start answering them and they'd be like, no, that's not the question. That's not what I want to hear you say. And you're like, well, that's the answer to the question. And this happened to me over and over and over again. And I got so tired of it. And, um, I was talking to a friend of mine about this, complaining about this one customer who I had, who is just like ostentatiously, um, you know, annoying and misogynistic. And, um, I got this image in my head of this person, uh, who was like just vomiting up receipt paper and, you know, it was like pooling around their legs. And the idea behind it basically was that the, like you just have so much that you think is is so important that you want to give, and you are are so like not even in control of yourself that even when you ask someone a question, you just vomit up information, and it like pulls around your feet because you you want to have like value and you want to give something to another person, but it just like has nothing written on it and it's worthless and it just like you know uh, it kind great. of entraps you. I love yeah. it. I love it. I loved watching it. Uh, just. Just watch it. I find it fascinating with stuff like that where you're so delicately placing things around him. Like you're like, I I want this to be here where other people might just wrap Mm -hmm. it around willy nilly. But you were like very uh, particular about how it was going to look, which was amazing. And Mm -hmm. one last one, because I love what you do. I think it's amazing um, from documentary, but also this type of fine art was there was something about Mm -hmm. toxic masculinity. And I didn't understand that Mm -hmm. one as well. Um, from sure. because I didn't see the final product, I'm seeing the behind the scenes videos, and you have I don't know what's on the guy's oh, back. It's mm-hmm. a turtle shell. Yeah, what, what's going confusing. on there? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, so that piece, the title changes all the time. Um, but the the meaning behind it. Well, I guess I should walk everybody through. So you're seeing the uh, the creation videos, yes. like the behind the scenes stuff, yes. and um, the the piece that you're talking about basically is. It's a it's a person, so we don't really know if it's like a man or a woman. Um, but they are sitting on a crate, and they have uh, tar and feather oh, that's, that's what that is. down okay. their back. Okay. But it's pieces of broken china wow. that's like stuck into their skin. Um, and the video that you're talking about, you're so confused because uh, that was a nightmare to shoot, and it <laughs> had a whole bunch of like surprises. I had to make this back piece thing out of, um, you know, the rubber that you put inside of cabinets yes. to keep stuff from moving. Mm-hmm. So I used that. And then I uh, did some pretty intense, like, uh, industrial adhesive to keep the china, which actually was on his back. Like, that wasn't edited there. Um, and so we got that going on. And then I had to make paste to make it look kind of like some type of tar type, like oil, like that kind of situation. And... Um, so I made a paste and then I, at the time, could not find black paint, like no matter how much I tried. So wow. it ended up being green. And then I had changed the color in Photoshop. All right. So well, that's why I thought it was a turtle shell, I think. <laughs> so confusing. Yeah. Out of context. Doesn't make any sense. Um, but uh, yeah, so that, that, um, but that piece is, is again, kind of discussing, uh, I, I use China in my work to discuss like, suburban middle class safety that kind of thing um but it basically is just the idea of 
you know, uh, masculinity is, oh gosh, what is that saying? It's something that's really, really hard to, it's really hard to get and it's very easy to lose, you know, and that idea of like um, the culture or the, the history of tar and feathering was a way of shaming someone publicly mm-hmm. and it didn't actually really deform a person entirely because of the the types of tar that they used to use, at least in the United States. Um, It was more of a way of kind of like damning someone or really, really ridiculing them. And I think that especially with um, young boys and generally young people in the United States, there's a lot of that that kind of goes on with that social, um, uh, I guess, just like, I don't know, like pariahism or, or, or really like that strong bullying culture that we have in the United States and how that can carry into adulthood. And it's something that you kind of just drag around with you um, and that is still very sensitive and uncomfortable. Um, and I wanted to make something that kind of was an, an homage to that. So, so where would we find piece, the, these pieces? Is it on your Instagram? Like if somebody wants to go and check yeah. out your work, besides brass-rabbit.com, uh, what, mm-hmm. where would we see this stuff? So um, I show my work as much as I possibly can. It's really hard to show your work right now. So, um, but I try to keep my Instagram updated. Most of my work you need to see in person. Right. That piece that we just talked about is about like, it's huge. It's, it's, it's printed on um, like a vinyl cloth and it's about like 10 feet tall. So wow. it's supposed to hang. Um, yeah. So you can't, you don't know that when you see it on Instagram, because it's a very, um, it's a very, very, uh, large image and the person's just right in the middle. But so to see my work and then to get updates on like where I'm showing and where you can see all this nonsense, um, you can look up at brass rabbit art on Instagram. And I believe that my TikTok, which has a whole bunch of, uh, closer to like behind the scenes kind of things, like lighter, more fun. Um, that's a uh, brass rabbit. And I believe the rabbit has two T's. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so for, yeah. so much for giving me some time. I know you seem very busy with your art. Uh, and <laughs> when you've got something else to promote, let me know. I'd love to have you back on. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This Absolutely. was fantastic.